You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it is a good day, isn't it? It is a great day. And so go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you are a first-time guest with us this morning, let me introduce myself. My name is Rodney, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it is so great to have you. We so appreciate you worshiping with us this morning. And one thing that would help us serve you um, kind of post this morning is if you'll make sure you take one of those black cards underneath your seat and during the service, fill that card out. And at the end of the service, if you'll make sure you, you put it in the little offering basket that we'll pass around, that would really help us serve you. So if you'll make sure you do that, um, we will make that worth your while and some things that we'll send you uh, this week in the mail. So make sure you do that and, uh, and we would love to follow up with you and serve you and get you the information that you need. Okay, today we are in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, here is the goal that I have for today. I want us to like feel deep in our bones the celebratory nature of what Easter is. I want us to be able to celebrate the, the message of Easter, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to be able to celebrate that. And, uh, and I want to do that through looking at 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I want to try to unpack three or four or five marks of the gospel. Now, here is my hope for us in the room as we're celebrating today. Here's my hope for us, the angst that I have for us. I am praying that God would give us a renewed sense of just how great the good news of Jesus is. That we would actually feel that deep in our bones just how good this message is. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians 15. If you need a Bible underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1, the first 11 verses go like this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So this is Paul's agenda. He is reminding us of the good news of Jesus. He has set that agenda, and that's our agenda for today. We, we want to celebrate and set our eyes upon the good news of Jesus, asking God to give us a renewed sense, just a reawakening in us of just how good this news is. He goes on. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Here are five marks of the gospel in this passage I want you to see this morning. Mark number one. The gospel is good news. I mean, I want us to feel that. Look at verse uh, 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. 
Let's just take that word by itself. The gospel, the word means good news. And that's what it is. It's the best news. It's the greatest news. That's gospel. Now let me go back to to establish the context of where that word came from. Its origin kind of finds itself in a military context. So picture yourself in a city a few thousand years ago, an ancient city. And your army has been led out by your king and your city to do battle on, on the city's behalf. And you stayed in the city and you are awaiting news anxiously because you know that their loss equals your loss. Their victory equals your victory. If they die by the sword, you're going to soon die by the same sword. So you are waiting anxiously for that news. And all of a sudden, you see on the horizon a man running back to the city. And in that moment, you are wondering this question as you await news in the city. You are wondering, is this going to be good advice from this man? Or is this about to be good news from this man? And in that moment, good news and good good advice are drastically different. See, good advice comes from the military strategist. It comes from the person who knows how to fight. And when it's good advice, the military strategist comes back into the city and he's looking at the city and he says, everyone pick up your swords. You there, you there, we have to fight for our lives. But good news is much different, isn't it? It doesn't come from the military strategist. It comes from the herald. They they used to call him the evangelist. When the battle has been won, you don't get the military strategist. You get the evangelist running back to the city. He comes into the middle of the town square not to give good advice upon what you must do, but to give the good news that the battle has been won on your behalf. And that's what the gospel is. It's not good advice about what you have to do to be presentable to God. It's not the good advice about what you have to do to make yourself right with God. It's not the the advice about what you have to do to kind of clean yourself up so you can come to God. It's the good news that God has done everything you can't do for you. Okay, now just take a second to think about this. This is what separates biblical Christianity from every other way of trying to relate to God. Every other way of relating to God is good advice. Every other way of relating to God is archers there, infantry there, fight for your lives, work hard, and maybe, just maybe, God will be okay with you. But but the gospel of Jesus Christ is altogether different. It is not good advice on what you have to do to make yourself presentable. It's the good news of what God has done to make you presentable. That's the good news of the gospel. Mark number two. Look at verses one and two. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the good news, the great news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and look at verse two. And by which you are being saved. The gospel is the good news that God saves. Amen? It's the good news that God actually rescues and redeems and changes people. He makes dead people come alive spiritually. That God saves like that. It's the good news that God saves. Now, let's do some thinking here with me. When you see that word saved, I want you to think about what it's implying. See, that word saved, to say that somebody needs to be saved or someone is being saved, that is implying that they are in grave danger. Are you seeing that? 
Before you would say someone is being saved, you would first be implying that they need to be saved. That there is something wrong, that the situation is serious, it's grave, and they need to be saved out of it. So I want you to think about that for a moment. That the fact that the Bible is saying that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves, that God saves, is implying that we all are in such grave danger that we need to be saved. And listen, that is exactly what the Bible affirms. If you're going to maybe summarize Ephesians chapter 2, Romans 1 through 3, among a variety of other passages in the Bible, and the Bible's going to say this stuff really bluntly. It doesn't pull any punches. The Bible's very blunt in the way it presents our condition. I think you can maybe summarize the Bible's teaching on our condition apart from Jesus like this. That apart from Jesus, our condition is more threatening, more grave, more serious, more severe, more urgent than anything you could ever imagine. Now hear that. That's why we need to be saved. That our condition apart from Jesus is more grave, it's more serious, more urgent, more threatening than anything you can possibly imagine. Maybe the clearest place to see this is in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's, it's convincing us of this overarching reality. That we have all sinned and fallen short of God's commands and standards. We have all, we're all in that boat together. In the Bible, there is one good person. His name is Jesus. And the rest of us are all in the category of fallen short. This is the the point of the first three chapters, that we have all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of his commands and his will for our life. And and God is a good and just God. And because God is good and just, he can't like scrape, you know, under the rug our rebellion and act like it doesn't exist. God can't do that because he's good. And, And then in Romans 6, he pronounces in light of his good nature, he pronounces in light of his righteousness, he pronounces over our sin his response. Romans 6.23 pronounces it like this, the wages of your sin is death. That is God's righteous response to our rebellion against him. The wages of your sin, the penalty of your sin is death. That's not just a physical and temporal death. It is that. It means that we're all going to die someday. But even worse than that, he is talking about not just physically and temporally, like you're going to die like physically someday, but he's also saying you're going to die spiritually and eternally someday. Romans 2, I think, gives one of the just most shocking warnings in all the Bible. It says that every day we are living in Romans 2, 5, apart from Jesus, every day that we live apart from Jesus, it is as if we are storing up more and more of God's wrath for our sin to be experienced. That is a shocking imagery there, isn't it? When I'm thinking about our condition apart from Jesus, how God sees us apart from Jesus, God's wrath for our sin apart from Jesus, when I'm thinking about that, I think this is the best way that I could give like a picture of that. The best picture I could give is consider, consider a valley. We might call this the valley of sin. And this is where humanity is. This is where we're all living in this valley of sin. And up on top of this valley, if you look up into the right or up into the left here, you'll see this huge dam. So we're in the valley of sin, and up here there is this huge dam, and that dam is holding back God's God's watery wrath for our sin. 
So God is looking at the valley of sin down here, valley of brokenness down here. And, and every day, the people in the valley of brokenness are living. Every day, they are storing up more and more wrath as they proactively sin against God, like doing things that they know they shouldn't, and as they passively rebel against God, not doing the things that he commands us to do. Every day, we are storing up more and more of that watery wrath. The water is building and building and building. And here's what I want us all to feel this morning, is there is going to be a day when that dam breaks. That day is coming when the dam breaks and the water of God's wrath floods into the valley of sin and brokenness. That, that day is coming. That, that day is on the horizon. That day is unavoidable. There will be a day where that watery wrath breaks through the dam and sweeps everyone away. Now, I, I know that when we talk about like God's wrath for sin, that that falls hard on 21st century ears. I like how R.C. Sproul, author, pastor, he said it like this, that the greatest myth of the last century is that there's no wrath in God. And listen, that's a myth. That's a myth. Because God is good, because he is righteous, because he is just, he cannot scrape sin under the rug. His response to sin is righteousness and justice and wrath. And listen, that is why we are in such serious, you know, in such a serious condition. That is why our condition apart from Jesus is more threatening and more urgent and more grave and more dangerous than anything you can possibly imagine. We are in that sort of shape apart from Jesus. And, and can we all just take a moment to breathe this in? And this is why the good news of the gospel is such great news. That God saves from his wrath from our sin. That is why the gospel is such good news that we are in such, grave, such a grave condition, such a serious and urgent condition, but God steps in and does something. God saves us and rescues us right in the middle of that. That is why the gospel is good news. It's against that backdrop of wrath over sin and, and all that that means. It's in that backdrop that makes the gospel such wonderful news for you and I today. So the question is, how is God going to save? If the gospel is good news, and it's the good news that God saves, the question is, how does he save? Answer, God saves. The gospel is the good news that God saves through substitution. Through substitution. You see it in verses 3 and 4. Look at, look at how it goes. God saves through substitution. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the, the good news of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If you want to summarize the gospel in four words, here's the summary of the gospel. Jesus in my place. That is the four-word summary that God saves through substitution. Everything that was Jesus's became ours, and everything that is ours became Jesus's. This is the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that God saves, and he does that through a really specific way, through the substitution of his son. So let's go back to the illustration of the valley of sin. We've got the valley of sin. We're living in the valley of sin, in the valley of rebellion, in the valley of brokenness, indifferent to God. Not paying no attention to God. That the water of God's wrath is building and will one day break. And the good news of the gospel is that God saves from that. 
And, and how does he save? He, send, he saves by sending his sinless son, Jesus Christ, into the valley of brokenness, into that valley of rebellion. He sent his son, Jesus, into that valley of brokenness, into the valley of sin. And on a, on a Friday, a couple of thousand years ago, he sent his son, Jesus, out to a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was nailed to a cross, slaughtered, slayed, crushed, cut down on that cross. And it was there on the cross where the dam broke. The water of God's wrath came cascading down toward the valley of brokenness. And rather than landing on the rebels, rather rather than landing on the sinful human beings that God created, all of God's watery wrath landed on a sinless son. That is the good news of the gospel. Maybe you can think of it this way. The water is cascading down toward us. We are all about to be swept away by God's wrath. But Jesus stood in our place. Jesus in our place. He steps between the rebels in the valley and this cascading watery wrath coming down toward them. And he absorbs it all. He takes it all. He drinks that watery wrath to the last drop so that there is none left. That is the good news of Jesus. It's Jesus in our place. Maybe the, maybe the most succinct summary of this in the entire Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It'll be on the screen for you. And here's how that summary goes. One verse summary. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now hear that. That is Jesus in our place. So so maybe you could picture the gospel like this. Here's the good news of the gospel. Picture two whiteboards up here, and we'll do whiteboard number one over here. Whiteboard number one is your life. Now think about all the descriptors, all the sinful things we would put in the middle of your, of your board. We might put immorality. We might put lust. We might put selfishness. We might put addictions. All the things that come on, on this side, impatience and anger. Now, now this is board one. Now this is you. Now think about board two over here. This is the perfect life of Jesus. And think about the things we would put on his board. We would put perfect. Perfectly living the commands of God, obedient, selfless, servant, sacrificial, all, meeting all of God's perfect standards. That's Jesus' board. Now here's the great news of the gospel. There's two exchanges that happen. This is substitution. This is Jesus in our place. There's two exchanges that happen. Here's the first exchange. Everything on our board is wiped clean. So that there's nothing left. Everything is wiped clean and everything on our board is smeared onto the board of Jesus. That's exchange number one. But then here's exchange number two. And this is why the gospel is such good news. That everything on Jesus' board, perfect, obedient, righteous, selfless. So everything on his board now gets written perfectly onto ours. See, it's not just that you were pardoned. It's that in Jesus, you are perfected. Now God looks at you as if you had lived the perfect life of Jesus. That is the great news of the gospel. That that God treated Jesus like he was a rebel. He treated his own son like he was a rebel so that he could make rebels like you and I, sons and daughters. 
That is the wonderful news of gospel, and that's what we're celebrating this morning. That, that's it. I love how some pastors of a few hundred years ago put it. This is in a book called The Valley of Vision. It's some prayers of some old pastors. This will be on the screen for you. This is Jesus in our place. Jesus substituted for us. Listen to how they say it. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, thirsty that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. He endured all pain that I might have unfading health. He bore a crown of thorns that I might have a crown of glory. He bowed his head that I might lift mine. He experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. And he expired that I might live forever. That is the good news of Jesus in our place. Here's Mark number four. The good news of the gospel, it's historical. The gospel is good news that is historical. And you know, I know that in a room like this, there are some of us that are sitting here today that you're just skeptical. And I, I kind of get that. Like, here's what we're saying today and celebrating today. That God became a man. His name was Jesus. He lived perfectly in our place. He died on a cross for our sin. So we get pardoned and we get perfected. And then he rose from the dead on the third day showing God's, God's approval. Showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. That's what we're saying we believe. That's what we're celebrating. And so I get that there would be some of us in the room that we're just skeptical. Like, are you serious? Really? And, and verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are written for you if that's you in the room. Here's what it says. Here's what Paul says. So this is just after he said he, he lived, he died, and he rose again. Then he said this in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, mostly of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Four times in four verses, Paul says, he appeared. Like this didn't happen in a vacuum or in some backwoods place where no one saw it. Like Jesus actually lived. He died on a cross, was buried three days dead in a tomb, and he rose from the dead and people saw it. Like over 500 people saw a risen, resurrected Jesus. So I, I want to encourage you, if you're skeptical in the room this morning, if it's like, a man, I, I get it, but I just don't know if I can bite off on all that. Let me just encourage you to start in the middle. Start with the most important questions, not all the peripheral ones. Start with this. Did Jesus really live? Did he die three days dead in a tomb and then rise from the dead? And if he did, if, that, if the answer is yes to that, see where those answers begin to take you. I like how one pastor said it. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, nothing else really matters. 
And I think you might just find, if you'll start with those questions that lie right in the center of the good news of Jesus, if you'll start there, you might find that those answers absolutely change your life like they have for so many in the room. It's historical. And number five, and we'll end with this. The gospel calls for a personal response. The gospel calls for a personal response. The truth is, is that the gospel is the best news that has ever landed on planet Earth. We are in a very grave and urgent and life-threatening, eternal life-threatening situation. And the good news of the gospel is that God saves, and he saves through the substitution of his son through Jesus in our place. But I want you to hear me just really clearly when I say this. That good news does nothing for you until you personally respond to it. It does nothing until you personally respond. And this is, this is what Paul is getting at. In 9, 10, and 11, he shows us what, what it looks like to personally respond to the gospel. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and here's the appropriate response to the gospel, and so you believed. We preached and you believed the good news of the gospel. See, at the end of the day, there are going to be two people, two categories of people standing before Jesus. When, when it's all said and done, when you breathe your last, there's two categories standing before Jesus. And those two categories aren't based on race, not based on wealth. Those two categories are both based solely on your personal response to Jesus. Your personal response. And if you want to just maybe summarize the two ways we can respond to Jesus, here would be way number one. That we can receive Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says believe. Sometimes the Bible talks about it in terms of putting your faith in Jesus. Sometimes it talks about it in terms of repenting. All of those are the same way of saying you have to receive Jesus. And listen, receiving Jesus does not mean that you're aware of some facts about Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're aware that he lived a perfect life, he died undeservingly for your sin and rose from the dead. It doesn't just mean that you are aware of those facts, and it doesn't mean that you're aware and that you agree with those facts. That's where biblical belief in receiving Jesus begins, but that's not biblical belief. Biblical belief, receiving Jesus, is when those facts that you are aware of, he lived in my place, died in my place, rose from the dead, it's when those facts, you not only agree, you know, are aware and agree with them, but when those facts land on your heart with force and vibrancy and life, creating in you this sort of a response, Jesus, I need you. See, it's when, when those things explode in you, those facts explode in you so that you turn from your sin and that you run and throw your life upon Jesus. That is what it means to receive him. The fruit of that sort of faith or the fruit of receiving Jesus is a deep and abiding and genuine love and affection and desires for Jesus. This is receiving Jesus. Now, the other option is to reject Jesus. And that can come in open hostility toward Jesus. But more often than not in our culture, here's what rejecting Jesus looks like. It looks like just kind of gently stiff-arming Jesus. It doesn't mean that we hate Jesus. It, we can even be slightly favorable to Jesus. 
but it just means we never personally respond to him. There's always something more urgent. There's always something more pressing. There's always something more urgent that you need to do right now other than respond to Jesus. What what rejection looks like more often than not in our culture are people who are aware of the facts about Jesus, the facts of the gospel, even agree with them, but never personally respond in faith, throwing your life upon him. And here's how I want to end today. I want to end by reminding you that the most important thing you will do in your life, the most important, the single most important decision you will ever make is what you do with Jesus. That's the single most important decision you'll ever make. There is nothing more urgent in your life than to nail that down. Let let me just remind you of the two results of receiving Jesus and, and rejecting Jesus. For all those who receive Jesus, here is the good news. God will no longer treat you like an enemy, like a rebel. For the rest of your days, all eternity, he will treat you like his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that was his becomes yours. Everything. There is no more wrath from God for all who receive Jesus. There is only the welcome, warmth, and affection of God. But for those who reject Jesus, the Bible is so clear and so blunt on this. For all those who reject Jesus, there is no welcome for God for all eternity. There is no warmth, no affection for God for all eternity. There is only wrath over our sin. That's it. That's what's at stake here. In, In your response to Jesus... It's either welcome from God for all eternity or wrath from God. It's either your great ruin or God's great rescue. For all of your days, here's what's riding on your response to Jesus. For the rest of your life, all eternity, you will either experience God's great salvation or the consequences of your great sin. And here is what Easter is reminding every one of us of, the good news of Jesus. He has stood in your place so that all those who receive him, everyone that receives him, it's an open invitation this morning, all who receive him, no more wrath, only welcome. No more ruin, only rescue. No more death, only life. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.